Good morning again, and thanks for listening to Film at 11 here on your community radio, KBOO Portland. KBOO is a volunteer-powered community platform, which means we are funded by you, the listener. Today, we take a deep dive into the films of Douglas Sirk via the new Criterion Collection edition of his Written on the Wind and a recent BFI monograph on that same film. Then we turn to the actor Rock Hudson, who is an integral part of Cirque's vision of 50s America. Meanwhile, Matthew of Cabo's Gremlin Time shows us the new Jackie Chan actioner. And you are listening to Film at 11 here on Community Radio, KBOO Portland. Please consider becoming a member today. And now let us investigate the career of Rock Hudson and how Douglas Sirk employed his status and subtlety in his series of melodramas. From its very first frames, Written on the Wind is in trouble with modern audiences. There is the hyperactivity of a sports car racing through the night amid oil derricks, the windswept mansion where a trio of characters look fraught, the vivid colors, and then the emergence of a lush song by the Four Aces. Faithless lovers kiss is written on the wind, a night of stolen bliss is written on the wind. We are in melodrama country. And the modern viewer, favoring the fad of slow cinema, would need a little dose of melodramamine. Based on the 1945 novel by Robert Wilder, Written on the Wind from 1956 focuses on the interactions of four people. Two of them are a brother and sister, Kyle and Mary Lee Hadley, who are heirs to a Texas oil business and its fortune. The other two are interlopers. Mitch Wayne is the son of a poor farmer who is more or less was given to the Hadley family as a child, while Lucy Moore is a sophisticated Manhattan professional woman who catches Kyle's eye one night and then more or less steals her away from Mitch, apparently as he has done often before. Robert Stack plays Kyle, and the complicatedly sensual Dorothy Malone plays Mary Lee, for which she won an Academy Award, while Lauren Bacall plays Lucy and Rock Cutson plays Mitch these two at the opposite end of the hysteria spectrum. The cast was later reunited for Cirque's Tarnished Angels. The narrative shares elements with the later Giant, as well as Rock Hudson himself, and anticipates certain dynamics in Vincent Minnelli's later Home from the Hill. Here, the central narrative is a feature-length flashback to the events to culminate on the night featured in the opening credits. Kyle wants to have a child with Lucy, Mary Lee has been in love with Mitch since childhood, and Mitch carries a torch for Lucy. The interlocking problems, expectations, and desires culminate in the violent night in which everything seems to happen at once. Mary Lee is the bad woman who has an opportunity to destroy Mitch's life, but stops herself from doing so at the last second as she proceeds to inherit the oil wind, while... Giant is a big film with the mammoth budget 
and top stars of its day, Written on the Wind is a lower-budget universal film produced by Albert Zugsmith, who alternated with Ross Hunter as Cirque's producer. Cirque's films were box office hits in the 50s, forgotten in the 60s, partially because Cirque retired and partially because Rock Hudson transitioned over to become a light comedian. But Cirque was rediscovered in the 70s as film writers surveyed great directors from the past and also taking a cue from the Cirque-admiring German director Fassbinder, and they began to look at his films more closely. As a result, the full spectrum of Cirque's career has been investigated, and the director has enjoyed edification in the Criterion collection, where three of his films can be found. This new Blu-ray version in the series comes in a restoration, and also features the trailer for this and All That Heaven Allows, English subtitles, a booklet with an essay by filmmaker Blair McClendon, a documentary from 2008 called Acting for Douglas Sirk, with archival interviews with the director, Hudson, Stack, Malone, and the producer. A new interview about the film and melodrama with Patricia White, who wrote the BFI monograph on Hitchcock's Rebecca. And finally, the melodrama archive, an annotated filmography of Sirk, a slideshow gallery with hundreds of behind-the-scenes production photos and vintage lobby cards from the three stages of the Danish director's career. It's a nice dress. Real flattering. I've changed since we last swam in the Raw, haven't I? Long, long time ago. I was an idiot boy then. Yes, you were. The other idiot boy is downstairs having himself a big party. It's a happy occasion, isn't it? Unbelievable. Married a whole year and still sober. And still faithful. It can't last much longer. Don't sell Lucy short. There's only so much a woman can do and no more. I speak from personal experience. With you. You know, you're remarkable. You've got your axe buried in Kyle's head and you're grinding it at the same time. I can think of much better things than making smart talk. All right, let's dance. Still the idiot boy. Written on the Wind is also the recipient of coverage in the British Film Institute's Film Classics series and a volume written by Peter William Evans which happens to be one of the best written and best packaged monographs in a series. Peter William Evans is Emeritus Professor of Film at Queen Mary University in London and has published books on Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown and on Louis Bunuel, lavishly illustrated with lush, full-color screen captures. The book on Written on the Wind is a detailed account of the film's differences between the source novel, its background, production, reception and influence, both critically and on the work of other filmmakers, such as Fassbinder and Todd Haynes. The author's insights begin with an annotation of the images and the words of the Four Aces theme song. He writes, Written on the wind guides the viewer to a low-angle shot of the hot rod that comes to an abrupt halt in a driveway, its offside headlamp prominent in the frame. A giant eye serving as another of the film's many lenses that peer into private and public worlds. Cirque's 
preeminent Hollywood modernist heritage shines through here. The surrealist tendency to stress the processes of perception, such as the eye scene in Unshan Andalu, finds its more measured visual complements in these and later scenes. End quote. He even knows the make of the hot rod Robert Stack drives, a yellow 1953 Allard J2X. Professor Evans is also very good on the subterranean tensions among the quartet. He comments on an early scene, quote, The description of Mitch as someone who, with assets beyond price, allows Cirque another poke at the materialism of a culture that, in Oscar Wilde's phrase, knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Even more interesting are vocabulary and phrases that, while seeming to praise Mitch, serve only to bury him. He's just a country boy, he's eccentric, and even a sidekick, the inferior buddy. Mitch's tonto to Kyle's lone ranger. All these reveal barely hidden teeming resentments, an impression strengthened when Kyle rises to greet Mitch and his companion. Uncouthness is added to Hauteur when he stubs out a cigarette in his champagne glass. As Kyle joins Mitch and Lucy in the frame, Cirque's shifting patterns in the relations between or among this trio show Kyle now through gray-colored coating closer to Lucy, as Mitch, as Mitch's conspicuous brown suit makes him the odd man out. And close quote. Later, Professor Evans adds of Kyle and Mitch, quote, yet each is the other's mirror. Kyle could do nothing to prevent his father's introduction of a cuckoo in the Hadley nest, unable over the years, as he puts it to Lucy en route to Miami, to shake him off. Mitch's reply, it works both ways, indicates that neither man has been capable for different reasons of breaking away. Friendship, when positive, entails mutuality, shared empathy, an ability to see things from another's point of view, a freedom to act naturally, to be oneself with another person, to ignore differences of race, gender, or class. Emerson defines friendship as a paradox in nature. Nevertheless, Freud claims that all emotional relations between individuals retain a Quote, sediment of feelings of aversion and hostility. In Cirque's mirror-laden world, the friends reflect each other, seeking mutual confirmation of identity. In Kyle's case, to negotiate his resentment as well as his admiration of Mitch. In Mitch's, to find equilibrium, social and psychological orientation, to compensate both for his father's intentioned rejection by agreeing to his transfer to the Hadley household and for his status there as an outsider. Close quote. Written on the wind is so enjoyable as a melodrama that it's easy to miss the seriousness beneath its vibrant surface and its critique of America. This movie should be as big and grand as Giant, but the director is showing a different kind of country, one where there are more oil rigs and trees, or where run-down roadhouses barely have customers during the day, and where the idle rich seem utterly disconnected from their families and each other, and simply buy companionship, however temporary. It's a great American film and well worth the attention, now being paid to it in DVDs and in books. It takes about 33 films for a neophyte actor, indeed a complete newcomer, to reach a plateau often sought after of skill and erotic presence on the screen. That is if you go by Rock Hudson's career. We learned this from the volume Rock Hudson, a paperback in the BFI's Star Studies series on performers. Rock Hudson is a close career reading. 
conducted by John Mercer, who is a professor of gender and sexuality at Birmingham City University. He's also written or co-authored other books, such as Melodrama, Genre, Style, and Sensibility. Hudson was from Illinois, where he dreamed of acting in movies, but never acted upon the dream. He didn't even begin to do any acting until he got out of the Navy in the late 40s. Taken on and renamed by the famous agent Henry Wilson, Hudson eventually was taken on as one of the last of the Universal Studio acting projects, where he learned how to sword fight, ride horses, and talk in front of a camera. His screen test is online, but also visible in the documentary Rock Hudson, All That Heaven Allowed, which was made too late for inclusion in this book, but an earlier documentary, Rock Hudson's Home Movies, was. And the author here has critical remarks to make about that earlier film, as I'll wager he would equally make about the new venture. In any case, Rock Hudson's screen presence started out rather shaky. Professor Mercer quotes, Jack Larson, the star of Hudson's first film, Fighter Squadron, who remembers Hudson's, quote, stage fright and onset nerves, which would evidently account for the untrained novice's performance. Quoting Larson, Mercer writes, Hudson would, quote, stumble, would gulp, would forget his lines. He wouldn't come in. It was an unbelievable situation. End of quote from Jack Larson. This characterization of Hudson's acting extends itself to film scholarship, Mercer goes on. In an essay on Hudson and Day's collaborations, Foster Hirsch describes Hudson in his early roles as demonstrating, quoting Hirsch, no discernible acting skill whatsoever as the wooden new actor with the trick name. And Mercer goes on, perhaps most critically, that Hudson still didn't seem to grasp what it took to create the semblance of a human being on film. Back to Mercer, this kind of dismissive summary of Hudson's work and the wider com concomitant debate around the nature of quality of Hollywood film acting is a subject close quote, that Mercer will return to in the course of this book. But after some 33 films, Hudson had become a pro. Professor Mercer goes on to quote the redeeming Foster Hertz from an essay on the Hudson Dorst A comedies in a book called Larger Than Life. Hirsch writes that in Magnificent Obsession, Hudson and Wyman perform in a hushed style that attains a quasi-mystical aura. Close quote. Mr. Mercer goes on to add, this interpretation of the performance register of Cirque's film draws attention not only to the distant liminal quality of Hudson's style, mirrored in Wyman's hushed, muted performance of grief and loss of hope, but also to the cool detachment of the director's approach. One of the most striking aspects of Magnificent Obsession is the extent to which Cirque simultaneously emotionally implicates the viewer in the drama and at the same time creates what has been regarded as an ironic distance from what has often been decried as tawdry source material. Continues Mr. Mercer, Helen's desolation reduces her friend Joyce, played by Barbara Rush, to tears when she tells her that tomorrow there won't be a dawn for me. She follows this line with, forgive me, Joyce, I didn't mean to parade my emotions. This piece of dialogue reveals the key to the performance style of both this film and the one to follow. Emotions are not paraded at all by any of the actors, but rather kept very much in check. The emotional parade is provided instead by the mise-en-scene, by lighting, by camera work, by the music of Frank Skinner, in this case, freely pastiching Beethoven and sometimes absurd in its high romantic intensity, close quote. As you can see, Mr. Mercer is excellent on gradations of acting intensity. He goes on to say, in the middle of the 1950s, the performance register developed by Hudson 
became the hallmark of his acting for the remainder of his career, providing a surprisingly flexible framework for working in a range of genres and with a variety of actors and directors. This register manifests itself as a very particular underplaying naturalism that is meant to convey self-containment, suggesting interiority through quietness rather than broad gesture. Hudson's solemnity in both Magnificent Obsession and All That Heaven Allows can tend to be read through a satirizing gaze, as so overdetermined as to be comedic. Although this would be to misunderstand the intentions of those performances and a dismissive appraisal of this kind of acting and its purveyors, it's notable that even contemporaneous accounts of film acting tend to draw attention to the perceived flaws of many screen actors. He concludes this point with, given the technical specifics of cinema as a medium, the naturalistic, underplayed act acting, often called for in cinema, has seemed to many critics to demonstrate many of the indices of bad acting. Close quote. And finally, Mr. Mercer is also very good on Written on the Wind, writing, The technicolor expressionism of Douglas Sirk reached a fever pitch with this operatic tragedy, which finds the director pushing his florid visuals and his critiques of American culture to their subversive extremes. Alcoholism, nymphomania, impotence, and deadly jealousy. These are just some of the toxins coursing through a massively wealthy, degenerate Texas oil family. With some of Cirque's most eye-popping mise-en-scene written on the wind as, a, as, as perverse a family portrait as has ever been splashed across the screen. Not long after Hudson's death, Richard Dyer noted that, quote, knowing that Rock Hudson was homosexual can alter the dynamics of looking. This is not the same as suggesting that Rock Hudson's sexuality was thus expressed in his performance. Quoting that line, Mr. Mercer continues, in making this case in a thoughtful and reflective essay originally written in 1985, Dyer cautions against the kind of revisionism of Hudson that was to later emerge. Close quote. Mr. Mercer comes out against that in relation to Rock Hudson's home movies, and probably also Rock Hudson, all that haven't allowed. It's also something to keep well in mind while watching Written on the Wind. Meanwhile, Matthew of Cabo's Gremlin Time joins us to discuss the new Jackie Chan actioner. It's a team of international criminals. The biggest oil heist in history. It's not personal. guys are a little bit on edge. You guys do nicknames? <sighs> Bald Eagle. Tomb Raider. Now playing on Netflix is Hidden Strike, and this is a new movie uh, by Jackie Chan. This time he's co-starring John Chenna in a role that uh, I guess originally was going to have Sylvester Stallone in it, but he had other commitments. And, and Chenna works really fine in this. Uh, you know, you're not expecting any sort of great filmmaking. You're just a nice actioner. you got enough of a plot to hang the whole story on. And in, in this, we've got a sort of in the near future, an oil war and uh, Jackie Chan is in an organization that uh, is uh, rescues people or a protection agency. And so we've got a bunch of technicians trapped at this refinery and this army of mercenaries wants to steal all the oil and Jackie's trying to rescue them. And then in the middle of this, he finds out that it's his, his own daughter is one of the uh, technicians there. So there's like a sort of 
conflict between them because uh, Jackie's character has been on the job trying to protect people. And of course, his daughter is thinking, why couldn't he stay home and be with me more often or, or something like that? So a nice little premise on the story. John Chenna's character is like one of the mercenaries. Uh, the big villain in this is played by uh, Jamie uh, Dornan, and he's really good in it. And it's a sort of movie that, you know, you just have to be excellent. You just have to be, you know, competent in it. And the construction of the movie, the pacing of it, and the stunts and everything really makes it kind of interesting. It's not like a really great action movie like, say, The, ex the Extraction or uh, Numi Rapunzel's uh, Close, but it's nice put together how Jackie's able to have lots of stunts and lots of action. Uh, parts of it is kind of like the movie uh, Hurricane Heist, where they're trying to stop uh, this uh, these thieves from stealing uh, the trucks with the oil in it. And so at one point, there's all these fights going on inside this facility. And then the movie opens out and we have all these truck chases and explosions and everything. And I found it all to be really kind of interest, uh, entertaining. Now, Senna's character, he's one of the mercenaries, but he's quit. Now, his brother, who'd been in the group with him, is trying to get him to come back for this one last strike. But, of course, the villain is just being villainy, and, and it just betrays everybody and ends up shooting the uh, Senna's brother. So he does it in a way to try and get Senna to go attack the, uh, the Chinese uh, uh, bodyguards, uh, Jackie Chan's group. But then that kind of falls apart. And sort of the heart of the movie is kind of how Jackie's character starts to understand Senna's character, who's this ex-mercenary, but he's living out there in the middle of Asia and he's helping this village and he's helping the kids there at the village and everything. So it shows that he's a good guy. And so Jackie has to sort of approach him in a way that uh, he won't be uh, angry at him, that he can make an ally out of this character. I think they're gonna shoot you. Why? Because the first time I see you, I want to shoot you. Now, Jackie seems to be doing these nice little pair-ups. He did one with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he did one with uh, Johnny Knoxville. And now here he is with John Senna, and I thought that they kind of played off each other pretty well because they, they both come from a sort of theatrical background that's similar. Um, Senna comes from the professional wrestling uh, stadium entertainment where, you know, he fills a stadium, he entertains to a stadium full of people. Jackie Chan comes from the Chinese opera background, which is filled with acrobatics and sword fights and choreography and stuff. And they have a nice little interplay with each other, which is kind of makes the heart of this film. Um, you know, considering that, you know, Jackie makes for an international audience. So these movies are probably going to be shown in subtitles in many places in the world. And so a lot of the dialogue doesn't have to be that good. But, you know, it's the idea of it. And like I say, the pacing and it's a nice little distraction. So we've got the the dad character who his daughter doesn't understand that he's serious about his job, but he still cares about her. And John Senna's character is just kind of trying to find his place. And one thing I noticed uh, in this film, uh, many things that harken back to uh, previous films that uh, Jackie Chan has done. Now, starting in the mid '80s, Chan had emerged from the Hong Kong cinema as a as a force to be reckoned with. He was uh, the movie Police Story. He moved out of the sort of light comedy action films into sort of serious uh, action dramas with Police Story and some of the others that he did at that time. 
Now, usually his movies will be about either a professional, like in Police Story, or uh, an amateur who is caught up in events and uh, and he has to show his extraordinary abilities just to survive. And <clears throat> and so that's the sort of two types of movies that Jackie had done for a long time. Recently, he focuses more on the sort of professional character. There is a uh, film called Vanguard where he heads up a security agency. And I felt it was a nice move for him at his age to like bring in younger performers to kind of help fill the screen and carry the action. Now, in this movie, Hidden Strike, Jackie does a lot of the action, or at least he really is coordinated with his stunt crew and stunt doubles to make a sort of seamless fight scene. In many of Jackie's fight scenes, and you see it in this, you'll have this confrontation with a strong uh, opponent, but they're also in some sort of strange environment, like in a factory or in this one of this, this uh, refinery. And there's a part where you'll use something as a weapon, but that can be used as a weapon against you. And something can happen that'll turn the whole environment dangerous to the two combatants. So how are they going to fight when they have to look out for things swinging around them? Or as in this instant, they're in this bare room that suddenly gets filled with foam and how they continue their fight in that. And that's a, a trademark uh, action sequence that uh, Jackie has developed through the decades in this movie. Now, um, this again is, uh, it's got his, his uh, dad theme where he's trying to look after the daughter. He's got the buddy theme where he's reaching out to, in this character, John Senna, to make a sort of pair. And the movie ends with a, a note that kind of implies that there'll be a follow-up film, which might be pretty good. But like I say, it's not really the greatest film. Some You can have questions about some of the CGI kind of, you can kind of see the seams with it. But like I say, it's entertaining. There's funny scenes. There's great action scenes. But there's not that much of really serious violence going on, which is interesting. Um, Jackie notes, note that Jackie saves Senna's character from actually getting revenge on the uh, man who killed his brother. Uh, it's kind of interesting how the villain brings about his own demise in the course of this movie. And this is all parts of the themes that Jackie has incorporated in his films. Uh, he's got another film coming out soon called A Legend, which sort of picks up on the archaeologist character that he's played in movies like Armor of God and was part of the uh, Jackie Chan cartoon series, as well as recent films like uh, The Myth and uh, Chinese Zodiac. And so another film to look for is called Legend. But for right now, out on Netflix, is, you know, a nice mid-level action film called Hidden Strike with uh, Jackie Chan, John Senna, and uh, Jamie Dornan. Put your seatbelt on. Hey, 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 Slow. And put in the hole. Thanks, Matthew. And again, thank you for listening to Community Radio, KBOO Portland. Film at 11 will be back next Friday, so until then, keep watching the screens.
faithless lover's kiss is written on the wind, a night of stolen bliss is written on the wind, just like the dying Promises we made are whispers in the breeze. They echo and they fade, just like our memories. Though you are gone from me. written on the way